Hello, I'm Carola and I'm bringing us Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 to 10. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, we've, as you know, we've been looking at Hebrews. Hebrews begins, the very first chapter, the first verse, begins with these words. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. This uh, book of Hebrews was written um, primarily to a group of Christians who were in danger of giving up. And as we have touched upon in our other other sermons and we'll probably touch upon a little bit more next week, that same danger could happen to us. We could lose our way and um, give up. So let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at your word in the book of Hebrews, please help us not to fall away, but to continue to grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to save us and we trust in his continual advocacy for us. Amen. Well, the Old Testament system of priests, which we've touched upon in the All Ages talk, I want you to use your imagination here a bit, not by throwing things in the air, but I want you to imagine that we have travelled back um, in time, some few thousand years, and we're living in Old Testament times. The biblical history of um, priests goes back to the time of Moses and his older brother Aaron, although there was one other that we shall look at in a moment. The Levitical priesthood began with Aaron, uh, the older brother of Moses. Aaron's descendants served as the priests in Israel, ministering in the tabernacle and later in the temple, primarily as mediators between humanity and God. The priests 
um, bore the responsibility of offering the sacrifices required by the Mosaic law. It was a picture, a foretaste of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. The author of Hebrews was trying to convince people that a religious system of sacrifices, rituals and rules that had been in place for over 1,400 years or so had now been replaced by a better way. He focuses on the supremacy of Jesus and that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Now we will only appreciate our need for a high priest to the degree that we realise how holy and because of his perfection and majesty how unapproachable God is and how sinful um, we are in comparison. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne surrounded by the seraphim who called out holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the prophet in Isaiah 6 was devastated. It devastated him because he immediately, immediately became aware of how utterly sinful he was in contrast to God in his awesome holiness. The high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. And so out of the nation of Israel, God chose the tribe of Levi to serve him and the sons of Aaron to be the priests. So while we're back in time and using our imaginations, let's do what they did back there and let's elect a high priest for ourselves. And I choose Luke. Just stay there. The high priest was elected from the other priests. He was the only one permitted to enter the most holy place, divided by a curtain from the rest of the tabernacle. Just imagine that this blue thing back here is the, is the curtain and behind over there is the Holy of Holies containing the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's very presence, which we read in Hebrews 9. The high priest could only enter the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement and, and to offer sacrifices for all the people, including himself. And there was only ever one high priest at a time. Priests existed prior to the Levites in a general sense. For example, we first see the role of a priest in Genesis 14 during Abraham's time, long before Levi was born. His name was Melchizedek. He mysteriously appears. Um, he is known as the king of the town of Salem, which I believe later became um, Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was also said to be a priest forever. And we read about him three times in three different spots in the Bible. Once in Genesis, another in Psalms 110, and also in Hebrews in a few places, but one being Hebrews chapter 6. This priestly system went on for centuries, but ultimately it didn't really remove sin. 
God had clearly demonstrated that he loves his people and he wants to forgive them. And the Levitical priesthood was never intended to be permanent. We read that in Hebrews 7. The death of Christ put an end to the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood. As we see when we read Matthew 27 at Jesus' death, the tearing of the temple curtain in half which really exposed the Holy of Holies and gave us all access to the Holy of Holies. And now Jesus himself serves as the believer's great high priest, called according to the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi. And through his death and resurrection, we have access to God's presence, where we can freely freely enjoy him forever. Well, we're going to leave Luke back in time because that's a good spot for him. And let's move on to New Testament times um, a couple of thousand years ago. And as we read in the first chapter of the book of John, God incredibly takes the form of a man and comes to earth and live as one of us. And as a man, he was subject to all the temptations that we face, yet he never gave in to that temptation. Jesus is also the only man who understands fully the deadly results of temptation that leads to sin. It can be way too easy for us to think, well, Jesus was God, he was fully God and fully human, and because he was God, Nothing was too much of a problem for him. He kind of sailed through life on earth as almost like a superhero and we could think that Jesus wasn't really affected by his life here. And in the end, what we're really saying is that he wasn't really one of us and he doesn't really understand us because he had some kind of supernature. Well, we'll look at how untrue that is. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 7, where we see Jesus' humanity. And verse 7 of that chapter says, During the days of, of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard by God because of his reverent submission. Well, Hebrews also says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now that sounds like what we've been hearing over the last few weeks as we've looked at Hebrews. The one thing we must do is hold firmly to Christ. We must put our trust in him. We must keep trusting in him for the rest of our days. Only if we do that, we remain part of God's people. Only if we do that, when we reach we reach. God's perfect heavenly rest. But the question comes, is that it? Is that all Christian offers to me now? It's just a promise. It's a great promise. It's something for the future. But is that it? Is it just a promise? Trust Christ and now I wait for heaven. If it is, then you might well ask, 
how am I meant to do that? How am I meant, how am I meant to keep holding onto Christ when life right now can be a real struggle and if we're honest, life can be a real struggle for us. A struggle for us just as people on the planet and also as Christians, perhaps even more so as Christians. We don't just struggle with the things in life like floods and fire and pandemics and economics. We have to, we have to struggle to keep trusting in Christ despite all the things that life chucks at us. And how are we to do that? How does Christianity help us do that? Or doesn't it? Is it simply trust Christ and sit back and wait for heaven? If my salvation is for the future, then what about now, here, on this earth? Well, Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we could then have Luke as the high priest, performing sacrifices for us each week. Well, let's let Luke out of that role. Um, Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus became that sacrifice. So that kind of settles it, doesn't it? If Jesus has offered himself as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, hasn't that done away with the need for an earthly priest? He sacrificed himself... And then Jesus' job was finished, right? So we don't need a priest at church here right now, do we? Well, we'll see. So what other roles does a priest have that we need today? In Romans 3, we read that, there's a, that Jesus had a mediator role between God and man. So we don't need to elect someone like Luke to that role because we need to constantly remind ourselves of Jesus and what he did was offer a once-only sacrifice. There are no more blood sacrifices. Jesus offered an eternal sacrifice. So do we need a priest today? Do we need someone here in church representing us as a priest? After all, You are a believer in Jesus. Um, You believe that he came to earth as a human, that he died for our sin and he rose again and had victory over death. Surely that's all I need. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to believe. All of that means that I can be born again. Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. It is because we have a high priest right here and now that we can hold firmly to our faith. Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest but God said to him, you are my son Today I have become your father. He also says in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who believed in him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and not from the Levite priesthood. The Christian life can be a struggle. 
and we can have ups and downs in our struggles. If that's you, that sounds a bit like what we've been hearing about the last few weeks in our study of Hebrews. The one thing we must do is hold firmly to Christ. We must put our trust in him and we must rest in him. We must keep trusting in him for the rest of our days. Only if we do that, we are part of God's people. Only if we do that, will we reach God's perfect heavenly rest. But the question comes, is that it? Is all that Christianity offered to me now a promise? Great promise. Is it just a promise for the future? Trust Christ and I wait for heaven. How am I meant to keep holding on to Christ when life is a real struggle? A struggle for us as Christians, perhaps even more so, um, because we don't just struggle with the everyday things of life. What's the Christian life meant to look like for us right now? It may be you're someone here this morning and you feel uncomfortable with the question of trusting Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian here. If that's you, can I say it's really great that you are here and you're very welcome here. Maybe this is a question that you could ask other Christians. You've heard Christians talk about heaven and you think, well, that's all very well, but what about now? What does being a Christian look like now? I think it might be a question that the reader of Hebrews might well have been asking. As Christians, what have we got? Well, the answer is in chapter 4, I think, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, that's Jesus, the Son of God. What we've got now is Jesus. And what have we got in Jesus is a is a great or a perfect high priest. Jesus was made perfect, read in verse 9 of chapter 5. Now that doesn't mean he wasn't perfect before. Being made perfect in this context means he was perfectly qualified as our high priest. So let's look at our perfect high priest, the one that we really need today. Let's go through the rest of the passage and look and see why he is a perfect high priest. What are the qualifications that he fulfills for that role? And having done that, we'll come back to our original question. What does that all mean in practice now? So first of all, why is he a high priest? Well, he's a perfect high priest because he is perfect in sympathy. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. For, what we, what we do, <clears throat> for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he was without sin. Now this quality of being able to sympathise was very important for the high priests. If you turn to chapter 5, verse 2. He is, an, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Since he himself is subject to weakness, a high priest must be gentle. Jesus is a perfect high priest because in uh, verse 15 we read, 
he is not only gentle, he positively sympathises with us. He positively sympathises with those he represents. The The Levitical high priest was a sinner, just like those he represented. That's why he was gentle with them. What about Jesus, the Son of God in all his perfection and divinity? How can he sympathise with us? Well, he can sympathise with us because he's been one of us. He has seen us, he's lived among us and he is still a human now in heaven but he has a glorified human body with a perfect, glorious resurrection body. He's been one of us and that he had an earthly weak body like ours and as a human he was one of us. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are, without fa- but without failing. He can sympathise because as a real human he experienced, experienced real life on this earth and faced all the temptations and hardships we ever face. So you could say he doesn't know what it's like to sin then. That's right. But he does know what it's like. He knows how hard it is to resist temptation. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, it's also the only man who knows fully what temptation means. I think it's sometimes all too easy for us to think, well, Jesus was God, therefore nothing was too much of a problem for him. But we read... During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Although he was God's son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So what does it mean he learned obedience? Well, he suffered is a reference to his death and his death taught him what obedience meant in practice. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where something pretty terrible has happened to you. Maybe you've been bereaved or had a broken relationship or, or something and you're talking to somebody about it who hasn't suffered in that way. And as you talk, well, they might be full of good intentions and they might want to help, but you just get the impression they don't really understand. You talk, but there's no kind of connection. It's hard to relate to them. They just don't know what it's like. And then you're talking to someone else about it and they say, actually, that happened to me. In Jesus, there is someone who understands, who knows what it's like. There is a real sure connection between you because he has been where you are and he knows what it's like. Maybe there are times we feel exhausted tired out with living for God. Well, Jesus knows what that's like. He's been there, hurt and betrayed, even by friends. Maybe we've experienced physical abuse, emotional suffering, mental anguish. Jesus knows what that's like. Maybe maybe we've faced a series of injustices and circumstances set against us. Jesus knows. Maybe we feel lonely, a loneliness that hurts us, makes us, makes us just want to cry. Jesus knows what that's like. He's cried those tears. 
What it means is that we can have a relationship with him, a real relationship with him. I think maybe there's a danger today of us thinking that Jesus is in a... We think of Jesus in rather business-like terms rather than relational ones. So Jesus becomes this kind of distant figure to us. He's out there somewhere. Yes, he's died for us. Yes, he saves us. But it becomes a function he performs for us out there. And he himself seems abstract and distant from us. The truth is Jesus has lived a real human life. He knows what it's like and so we can have a real relationship with him. We can talk to him like we could talk to that person who has been through the same experience. We can tell him how it feels. We can cry out to him. We can cry with him. And all the times we do that, he ever so tenderly listens and says, I know exactly how you feel. Jesus is our perfect high priest because he is perfect in sympathy. And what does that mean in practice? What does this mean for us right now? Well, in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can approach confidently. The Old Testament had high priests. Today we have Jesus who's done the job of that great high priest, that the high priest was meant to do. So we can have a, a real, true, confident with confident relationship with God through Christ and what do we do when we go to God end of, end, of, end of verse 16 we can approach so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need we go to him for help we can obtain forgiveness for all the things we've done wrong Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for our sin but we can also go to him for help to to keep us living for him, to help us to keep trusting in him and he is able to help us because he knows what it's like. We can be forgiven. By keeping on going to Christ for help, uh, for help Christianity is not about just gritting your teeth and hanging on. It's not all self-effort to get there. Yes, we must persevere, but we're not strong enough on our own. Jesus said that we must take up our cross and follow him. He knew that it would be tough to live as a Christian. We need help in our Christian walk and we could admit it to our high priest. He knows what it's like. We have real forgiveness. We have a real forgiveness because of his sacrifice. Christianity is not just a promise for the future. We hold on to a great hope and we must hold on to it. But we must, but we have one who will help us hold on, one who will take us to that promise. He represents us before Almighty God. We have one who can help so that we don't just quit. We don't just fade away. We don't just pretend. We don't do this alone. We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus, our perfect high priest. Let's pray.
Heavenly Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the promise of your perfect eternal rest, life with you in a perfect world, enjoying you and knowing you. And we thank you for our perfect High Priest who is perfectly able to take us there. Please help us to go to him day by day, trusting in him, crying out to him, depending on him, and then one day to see you face to face. Amen.